Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Thanks, Tash, and uh, good morning. Um, I'm really sorry if you came along this morning expecting to hear from Phil. A few days ago, I was expecting to come along this morning and hear from Phil as well, but his family had other ideas, and it's great that they're having an opportunity to honor him on his uh, birthday weekend. I don't really know what I did to deserve it, but when we did the series on the Messiah, they gave me the second coming. No pressure then. When we did the series on the wisdom literature, they gave me Song of Songs, just the most intimate book in the Bible. I I asked, you will remember, uh, Grant and Lindsay to share some of their story that night, and look at the damage that has caused. (laughs) They're now going to have to buy even more presents next Christmas. Uh, When we did the series on Mark, uh, they gave me chapter 11. When you have to preach about, you remember from the summer? A donking. So whenever Dave said, this time, um, because we're coming at short notice, you can preach um, from whatever passage you like, you might have expected me to choose something that was really easy. But oh no. I've gone with blazing angels, a man in the depths of despair, and the most expensive lip balm that the world has ever known. Now, we'll get there, I hope, in due course. For the last few months, we've been exploring this concept of unveiled faces. That comes directly from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." As Alan explained so comprehensively to us last week, Paul is pointing uh, the church back to Moses. Moses had a veiled face. And that's because the radiance from his encounters with God would fade. So he used to cover his face to hide the ever decreasing glory. We have unveiled faces. That's because we live on this side of the cross. And for us, there is an opportunity to experience the radiance of God continually. We can experience that. That doesn't mean that we always do. And that's what we're really going to think about this morning. What is it perhaps that prevents us sometimes from having the veil lifted? What, what prevents us from stepping into the thin place? But we weren't the first people to have the unveiled face experience. You see, once or twice, God permitted Old Testament believers to experience his presence in the transformational way that we have an opportunity to experience it today. Old Testament believers like Isaiah. So turn with me for a moment to Isaiah chapter 6. It's a really well-known passage. Some of you could probably recite it and you'll have heard lots of sermons on it, but I hope that we will find something new. In fact, I'm sure the Lord has something new to show us in this passage this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Glorious words. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. In 27 years of broadcast journalism, it has only happened once. The producer rang from the gallery at five to six in the morning. We can see the live picture from Stormont, David, but we can't see you. Um, It was just as well he couldn't see me. I was still in my boxers. It's not a pretty sight at five to six in the morning, but that's a wake-up call. Have you ever had a wake-up call? Some wake-up calls are much more life-changing than mine was. Calls like Isaiah's. It was the 8th century BC, 800 years before Jesus, when Israel suffered a national catastrophe. They lost their king. Now, in in their rogues gallery of monarchs, Uzziah was one of few exceptions. Uh, He had ruled quite well for most of his 52 years on the throne. Isaiah was a friend of this king. Isaiah half lived in the palace, but Isaiah had been forced to watch on helplessly when the king in his old age allowed pride to overtake him and being struck with leprosy. So Isaiah had lost his friend. Isaiah had lost his home. And Isaiah had lost a lot of his hope. But from that lowest point in his life, God would raise up a man who would become the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. What Shakespeare was to literature, what Beethoven was to music, what Michelangelo was to art, Isaiah was to prophesy. No other prophet of the Old Testament is quoted more often in the New. How did he become that effective? Well, I'm going to dare to suggest he became that effective by having an unveiled face experience on the Moses side of the cross. It radically changed his life. I wonder, are we prepared really to have our lives radically changed? Are we really prepared to have our lives turned upside down? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. Now pause just right there. Who did Isaiah see? Look at verse 3, right down the bottom of the screen. In the Old Testament, the word Lord is usually spelt with capital letters. Capital O, capital L, capital O, capital O, capital D. That's a translation of Yahweh, the Holy One, God himself. But in verse 1, right at the very top line, only the L is capital. That's a translation of Adonai, the Sovereign One, the King Jesus. This isn't a theophany, a vision of God. This is a Christophany, a vision of Jesus. Um, We won't take time to turn there, but John 12 and verse 41 confirms that for us. Hundreds of years before his incarnation, hundreds of years before the very first Christmas, Isaiah saw Jesus. 
And about a hundred years after his ascension, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, we read in Revelation that John sees heaven opened. And where is Jesus? He's still seated on the throne, high and exalted. Exalted, Paul tells the Philippians, because God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Do you get that? There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Will we bow before him on this day as our Lord or will we bow before him on that day as our judge? Exalted and then seated, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, because his work is done. It was done at the cross, and so he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Do you know what that means? It means it doesn't matter what happens in Parliament on Tuesday. Theresa May is not on the throne. Jeremy Corbyn is not on the throne. Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Union, is not on the throne. Donald Trump, praise the Lord, is not on the throne. (laughs) Vladimir Putin is not on the throne. Kim Jong-un of North Korea is not on the throne. Jesus Christ is on the throne this morning. He was high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now think back to the royal wedding a little earlier in this year. When Meghan Markle, now Duchess of Sussex, turned up at the church, all you fashionistas out there went, wow. We fashionistas just spent the next hour trying to figure out why anyone would want to drag half a carpet behind them. (laughs) Well, in ancient tradition, I'm told the longer the the train, the greater the authority. Royal brides have these lengthy trains to denote the fact that they're marrying heirs to the throne. The train Isaiah saw didn't fill the steps. It filled the temple. And I want you to note something. It didn't take the robe to fill the temple. The train of the robe was enough. In fact, the hem of the robe would have been enough. Remember the story of the woman who'd been bleeding for years and was healed because she realized that just touching the hem of his garment was going to be enough. His power filled the temple. There was no place where he was not. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Well, maybe not as mind-boggling as the fact that that same power fills the room that we sit in this morning. There is no part of our lives, no part of our church, no part of our city where he is not. Imagine what would happen if we fully acknowledged that by fully surrendering every corner of our lives to him and inviting him to come and fill us with his spirit. I'll tell you what would happen. Revival. Twelve men filled with the spirit changed the world. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What are seraphim? It's literally translated blazing angels. Fiery guardians of God's holiness. 
With two wings, they covered their faces. That's worship. With two wings, they covered their feet. That's worship. There's something about feet and worship. Remember when God told Moses um, to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground? And with two wings, they were flying. That's service. Now, have you done the maths there? Just two wings for service, but four wings for worship. I think that's called prioritizing presence. Worship is that important to God. And they only sang one worship song. They didn't have a whole set. Holy, holy, holy. When the Jews wanted to emphasize something, they used repetition. They didn't have bold font or italics on their laptop. Jesus often says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, literally translated from amen, amen. But on very few occasions in Scripture do we find this threefold declaration. Holy, holy, holy. He cannot be more holy. Don't you just love the fact that the worshiping angels are on fire? Remember that when you're tempted to think this flag waving is a bit over the top in worship. There's no such thing as being over the top, too zealous, too on fire in our worship. And remember this vision, whenever we're tempted to, to think, they're singing that, that song too many times this morning. When we got out of bed this morning, the seraphim were singing, holy, holy, holy. When we get into bed tonight, the seraphim will still be singing, holy, 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 because he's worth it. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Stone pillars, wooden thresholds, dead, lifeless, inanimate things began to move. Remember when the Pharisees told Jesus to silence his disciples? If they keep quiet, he said, the stones will cry out. Worship is going to happen whether we're in on it or not. And when it does, things happen. The cloud which had led Isaiah's ancestors in the desert, the Shekinah glory of God's presence filled the house. I'm so reminded of 2 Chronicles 5 when the people worshipped with such passion that the temple was filled with the cloud to the extent that the priests could not perform their service and had to sit down. Imagine our worship being passionate enough that the cloud descends and the preacher has to sit down because he or she doesn't want to interrupt what God is doing in the house. Why wouldn't we want to catch just a glimpse of this vision of Isaiah? What has made us doubt that God is still on the throne, that he is still this powerful, that he is still this holy? Is your marriage in trouble? Are your teenagers rebelling? Have you lost your job? Well, if you're in one of those places, let me just encourage you this morning to substitute Isaiah's wake-up call for your wake-up call. In the year my marriage failed, I saw the Lord. In the year my children went off the rails, I saw the Lord. In the year I lost my job, I, I saw the Lord. Because those are the moments when we're not supposed to give up. We're supposed to look up. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the middle of his brokenness, Isaiah saw the Lord. 
And then Isaiah saw himself. We know from the previous chapter that Isaiah was a very good preacher. He would have fitted in really well in Northern Ireland. All of his points begin with, woe. Woe to you who add house to house and field to field until there is no space left. Woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after your drinks and stay up late at night until you're inflamed with wine. Woe to you who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to you who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you and woe to you and woe to you and woe to you. It just goes on and on. But he's just pointing the finger at everyone else. Look what happens when he comes face to face with God. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm no better than anyone else. The penny has dropped for Isaiah. I'm ruined or I am undone. I think I prefer that in some of the older versions. I'm coming apart at the seams. Isaiah is in the midst of a mental, physical and spiritual breakdown. Total despair. Because until now, everyone had told him what a great guy he was. What a great preacher he was. Patting him on the back. One glimpse of God's holiness and he's a quivering wreck. That's a really painful place to find yourself. Such a painful place that we tend to avoid it by making ourselves little demagogues who reduce God into what makes us feel comfortable. People decide that God is just too loving to send anyone to hell. That there are many different versions of God available out there, but they will all lead us to heaven. That you can believe what you want and I can believe what I want. That there is no absolute truth about the creator of the universe. I know we need to be politically correct and we don't want to cause ever unnecessary offence, but think about how absolutely ridiculous the any God will do approach is. Just imagine this morning there are two people in this gathering who go for coffee afterwards with a friend. David Blevins was preaching this morning. Oh really, what's he like? Well, he's a six foot five African American. No, he isn't, the other one would say. He's a little, bold Northern Irish man. (laughs) Now, imagine the friend who had not been at the gathering then replying, don't worry, he can be whichever each of you wants him to be. It's ridiculous, isn't it? We can't be other than what we are in truth. How can God be anything other than what he is? He's unique, set apart, totally other, three times holy, a consuming fire. It's not that God won't tolerate our sin. God can't tolerate our sin. But we will never see ourselves the way Isaiah saw himself until we see God the way Isaiah saw God. This was the moment he stopped playing God with God. Think of the things that Isaiah declared about God after he'd had this encounter. Isaiah 43, before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Isaiah 44, I am the first and I am the last, apart from me there is no God. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other, apart from me there is no God. His his perspective of God has been radically transformed. Remember 1 Samuel when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant Uh, beside their gods Dagon 
They came back in the morning and where was their God? Lying on the floor. They come back the second morning having propped him up and their God's lying on the floor in pieces. It really is worthwhile taking time to read all of Isaiah 44. He mocks them for cutting down trees to light fires for cooking their food and then deciding it's a really good idea to use the wood that's left over, the waste wood, to build a God to worship. God is not some version of ourselves that we can mess with. You know, it really amazes me when I hear people say, I can't wait to get to heaven because, boy, I've got questions for God. Really? Remember what happened when Job came with his questions? Where were you, Job, when I led the earth's foundations? Where were you when I said to the sea, this far you can come and no further? Have you got the keys to the storehouses laden with snow? Do you send out the lightning bolts, Job? On and on it goes for about four chapters. I bet Job was sorry he ever asked the question. (laughs) We don't get to trivialize God like that. Remember when uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and Moses asked, "Who, who shall I say sent me? God replied, I am who I am. He did not say, I am whoever you think I am, Moses. He did not say, I am whoever you would like me to be, Moses. I am whoever will not cause any offense to Pharaoh, Moses. He said, I am who I am. It's quite extraordinary, you know, when you begin to see God in the manner God intends us to see him. There's a truth about him. And when we see that truth through unveiled eyes, we are utterly crushed by the weight of our own sinfulness. Woe is me, cried Isaiah. This is highly unusual. A prophet of God, the preacher himself, pronouncing a curse on himself. Do you feel his pain? I know I feel his pain. Because I don't stand here this morning because I've got it all together. Quite the opposite. I stand here this morning absolutely depending on the grace of Almighty God. All of us battle with sin. For uh, for me, it's one sin in particular. And for many people, it's one sin in particular. Our thorns in the flesh. And at times I've feared that my sin's going to be exposed and been really worried about what people might think of me. How ridiculous because it's never hidden from God. We become complacent about that because we try to put God in a little box. We need to rediscover our fear of the Lord. And I don't mean by that that we need to be frightened of him. We need to restore our sense of awe and wonder of who it is in whose presence we meet. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear before that same grace my fear relieved. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw himself. And Isaiah saw the cross. Now, if we had the sound effect of screeching bricks, I would play them right now. Hang on a minute. The cross, this is 800 years before the cross. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There is only one place where our guilt is taken away and our sin atoned for. Thank God for the cross. 
a live coal on his lips, the most sensitive part of his body, the mouth through which he ministered. This would have been really painful for Isaiah. But you see, whenever we are confronted with our own sin, it's really painful. So painful there is nowhere else to go but to the cross. But the lip balm from the altar did not come cheap. We'll never fully comprehend the price God paid for us until we grasp who God is and who we are. There's no cheap grace. There's no easy believism. We have to come broken. We have to come genuinely sorry for the way we've treated God. Do you not know, asks Isaiah, have you not heard? He's the maker of heaven and earth. That's who sacrificed his one and only son for us. That's who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be righteous. We might be made right with God. We're coming up to Christmas and we'll hear lots from Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But for me, there's one prophecy that stands head and shoulders above all the others. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Count the number of times the words he or him interact with the words are we and us. Ten times between this one verse and the previous one. It's all about him doing something for us. But it's only when the veil is lifted from our faces that we get to see that the veil has been torn in the temple from top to bottom. Declaring the holiest of holy places open because the holiest of holy gods has paid the price and it is finished. That's what Isaiah got to see. And he got to see it 800 years before it happened. That's time traveling on a whole other level. He got to glimpse the most significant moment there would ever be in history. The moment of substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? The moment when Jesus took our place. If you take nothing else home with you today, would you just take away those four words? He took our place. I want to tell you about my friend Bob from Portadown. Bob is in the Father's house now. Bob and his wife had a caravan on the north coast. And one afternoon about 20 years ago, he asked his son to take him for a drive to a little village called Stranocum in County Antrim. He said he would explain why on the way. Bob had served in the Second World War. He was a gunner with the Maritime Royal Artillery. And for the duration of the war, he'd served alongside his best friend, Jim. They'd never been separated. But at one stage, Jim became ill with malaria and was going to have to leave the ship. For the first time, they were going to be separated. At the very last minute, one comrade stepped forward and said, I'll tell you what, let Bob remain with Jim until he recovers and they can come back onto the ship together. The comrade's name was Daniel Holmes and he came from, guess where, Stranocum in County Antrim. Well, you can guess what happened. Shortly after the ship left port, it was torpedoed and there were no survivors. Bob hadn't told anyone that story in 40 years. But when they reached the village that day, 
Firstly, they discovered that the war memorial only contained the names of First World War fallen, but somebody pointed them down the road to the war memorial in Ballymoney. And when they got there, Bob just pointed to one name carved in the stone, the name of Daniel Holmes. And his son said to me, Dad's words were very few. He took my place. He took my place. That's what Jesus did for us. And when we come face to face with God, face to face with ourselves, and face to face with the cross, we comprehend the magnitude of what God did. And then the compulsion to share, that just becomes overwhelming. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Was God sending Isaiah to pastor a mega church where the Bethel band would lead worship every Sunday and where people would queue in the aisle to come to faith? Far from it. He was sending him to preach the gospel to a people, the Bible tells us, who would never respond. An utterly thankless task. But Isaiah didn't even wait for God to finish asking the question really before he had his hand in the air saying, send me, I'll go. That's the compulsion he had to share effectively the gospel from an Old Testament perspective. Did you read the story of John Chow a couple of weeks ago, the American guy who was killed trying to bring the gospel to that remote tribe in India? He wrote in his journal, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please don't be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Lots of people think he did the most foolish thing. But I've got to say, those sound to me like the words of a man who had seen the cross and felt compelled to share it. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw himself. And Isaiah saw the cross. We talk an awful lot about strategy these days, and it's really important that we have a strategy. But did you ever think about the strategy of the Old Testament believers? Take Moses, for example. Let's just walk up to the edge of this Red Sea and see if it will split in two so we can walk through it. That's a really dumb strategy. Think about Joshua. Let's walk around these walls seven times and see will they fall down. That's a really dumb strategy. But you know what? The sea did split in two. And the walls did fall down. Because God was in it. There is no better strategy than figuring out who God is and where God is and just joining him there. Because that's where the action is. It reminds me of an assignment I had in Balmoral a few years ago. The Duke of Edinburgh had become unwell and been admitted to hospital, so they sent us there just in case the worst happened. And at one stage during our three or four days in Balmoral, the castle gates opened and uh, an old lady in a headscarf drove out at the wheel of her Land Rover. All of these tourists peered really rudely through the windows. And then one of them said, who's the old dear in the headscarf? That'll be the queen, I said. They were so embarrassed because they had not behaved appropriately in her presence. Have we any idea in whose presence we sit this morning? He is seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple. You know, if only we could see him, we'd worship like the blazing angels. Can we see the Lord? 
I'm going to be completely honest with you. There are Sundays when I leave here thinking the presence of God was really palpable this morning in worship. There are other Sundays where I leave here thinking, well, God didn't really show up today. And then the reality dawns. How dare I? I don't invite God into my presence. God invites me into his. And if we don't experience the presence of Jesus in our worship, it's not because God hasn't shown up. It's because there's usually sin in the camp and it's probably in my tent. Remember what happened when Achan hid the gold in his tent? He paid with his life. And that didn't end with the New Testament. Remember what happened when Ananias and Sapphira lied about their offering? They paid with their lives. If we stand here with unconfessed sin in our lives and plead with God to show up and make his presence felt in a greater way, we are playing with fire, literally playing with all-consuming fire. Isaiah's saving grace was the fact that he recognized his own sin. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's not that God isn't willing to forgive. It's usually that we're not willing to repent. God is so holy, he can't just ignore our sin, but he is so gracious. He didn't leave us without a rescuer. He sent us a rescuer. But we don't even realize our need of the rescuer until we understand who God is and who we are. Can we see the Lord? And can we see ourselves? Do you know what happened two years before Isaiah had this vision? The powerful Roman Empire was founded. The Bible makes absolutely no reference to it. Not a single word. But God devotes this entire chapter to one man's encounter with him. That's how much God wants to meet with you and me this morning. That's how much he wants to radically transform our lives. He wants to do it so much that he sent Jesus to make it possible so that the veil might be lifted from our faces. Now, did you catch that? That's how much he wants to change our lives. Because once we get through the point of recognizing who he is and who we are, only he can do the rest. Isaiah didn't lift the hot coal with tongs from the altar. Only God can do it. You plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to, make, to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? How many times is it all about him? Our sin is of great measure. But there is no measure to his grace, to quote Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Can we see the Lord? Can we see ourselves? And can we see the cross? As the band come back just uh, to lead us in a final song, I want to ask, could this be this morning our Isaiah moment? Could this be the moment when we experience God like we've never experienced him before? Just because we open our eyes? Could this be the moment when we're more honest about ourselves than we've ever been before? Are we ready to say, woe is me? I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. 
living among a people of unclean lips? Could this be the moment when the cross becomes a reality in our lives to a greater extent than it ever has before? If that's the longing of your heart this morning, I can tell you it's the longing of mine. If, if it's the longing of your heart, hear this. He is still on the throne. High and exalted. And the train of his robe fills this temple. Our guilt can be taken away. Our sin can be atoned for. And if that's not a reason to worship like a blazing angel, I don't know what is. Father, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that we are invited into your throne room. And we pray this morning that you would just increase within us the sense of your presence among us. Would you open our eyes to see Jesus? And give us the courage to stop playing God with God and to see ourselves for who we are. To be really honest and to talk to someone with us about the things that we need to do business with God about. To go and talk with the prayer team this morning. Give us the courage to do that. So that we will go through the rest of this day changed. Because we've seen the cross for the first time. Or we've seen the cross in a greater light than we've ever seen it before. In a way that enables us to say, Jesus, all of me, all of me, for all of you, to your honour and glory. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.